My name is Sophia Osborne, and you're listening to the Root and STEM podcast, a podcast exploring issues and stories in STEAM education. On this episode of the Root and STEM podcast, I want to tell you about a story that hits home for me here on the west coast of British Columbia. I'm a writer and audio producer living in Vancouver, but I spend a lot of time out on Saturna Island, where my dad moved when he retired. Saturna is the southernmost of the beautiful Gulf Islands, and from my dad's house we look straight out at Boundary Pass, a body of water dividing Canada from the U.S. Often, we'll be sitting on the couch reading when we hear the telltale sound of a whale coming up for air. We'll rush out onto the deck and watch as killer whales or humpback whales surface, sometimes even heaving themselves out of the water. These encounters have made me so much more aware of our marine mammal neighbors, and it's something I've explored a lot in my writing. Last summer, I had a really interesting conversation with an underwater acoustician named Tom Dakin. Tom was in my dad's basement, working on the hydrophone that's hooked up in front of my dad's house. Hydrophones are underwater microphones that record the sounds of the ocean, including whale calls. As we chatted, Tom told me he believes BC is using more hydrophones to monitor whales than anywhere else in the world. Tom installs hydrophones up and down the coast for clients including the BC Coastwide Hydrophone Network, which is a coalition of NGO hydrophone projects. He told me that there will soon be 21 hydrophones in the water for that network alone, collecting underwater acoustic data 24-7. Now that's a lot of data, about 183 terabytes of data per year. And that's not even including the hydrophones operated by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and Transport Canada. With so much data being collected, how can scientists even begin to parse through it all? The answer is artificial intelligence tools that use something like speech recognition to pick out certain important sounds like whale calls. It's kind of like Apple's Siri or Amazon's Alexa, but for the sounds of the ocean. I spoke with Oliver Kersebaum about how this technology works. Oliver is a senior staff scientist on the Meridian Project at the Institute for Big Data Analytics at Dalhousie University. You know, what we do is not too different from what uh, some of the big tech companies do already. So uh, companies like Google or Facebook, Amazon. So we're using similar techniques to to what they're using, these uh, neural networks or artificial intelligence algorithms. And the idea with these algorithms is that you can uh, train them uh, by by feeding them examples of, uh, in our case, sound clips so we can we can these these algorithms the, you train them by feeding them examples examples in which you know the answer so you know if this particular sound clip contains the call of of a certain whale or not and then the this neural network learns to um determine if if that call is present in the sound clip through this sort of this training process so certainly the, the having access to uh, to enough and high enough quality training data is the, the chief 
uh, sort of the, the major challenge that we're facing because although these algorithms, they can be trained to do really impressive things, they're sort of kind of dumb too, in the sense that they require just a lot of data uh, before they get to that point. And so, you know, they're, although we keep talking about them as art artificial intelligence, they're still far away from uh, what a, a human is capable of, which is to recognize a sound, having heard just a few examples of that sound. With a, a neural network, we have to show it so many examples before it starts to recognize that sound. And even then it will still make mistakes. And so one of the things we're struggling with is how to incorporate sort of a, what we call a long, a longer temporal context into the decision-making of the neural network. Because the way that we've been approaching this so far is to just give little sound clips to the network. So if we're looking for a, so for instance, with an orthodontic right whale, the opcall, we'll just, the network will get three seconds of data and try to make its decision based on those three seconds. Uh, but often what a, a human will use is also awareness of context. So they will have been listening to the, the audio for minutes or even hours before that one call comes. And so they will have sort of a, a more uh, holistic view of, of what the soundscape is, what kind of sounds are happening uh, here in this particular location underwater. And that will, and they can use that to determine if this call is really a call from a whale, or maybe it's just, maybe it's something else that just sounds like it, but without uh, uh, sort of that memory of what went before. So that's, that's one thing that we're lacking right now in the algorithms that we've been working with is that knowledge of what happened sort of being able to retain that knowledge of what happened a minute ago or 50 minutes ago. That's very challenging. So that's one of the things we're working on. Another challenge faced by those creating whale AI is the presence of similar sounds that can lead to false positives when the AI believes it's identifying a whale call but is actually hearing something like a bird call or the sound of a boat. Now, let's try a little experiment. I want you to listen to the sound and make a guess. Is this a whale call or something else? Okay, and what about this sound? Not super easy, right? Well, that first clip I played featured the calls of a few southern resident killer whales, but the second clip was actually a boat winch. To train these AI to recognize whale calls accurately, they are fed datasets that have been annotated by people like Jasper Keynes, a junior staff scientist for Ocean Networks Canada. I became interested because I have always had a deep passion for cetaceans. I really, really love whales and dolphins, especially the orcas. And throughout my undergraduate degree, I did 
a number of work opportunities where I did boat-based research, I tried land-based research, and eventually as I learned more about these animals, I realized just how important sound is to their world. They, they see with sound, they communicate with sound, it's, it's the most important sense to them. So I thought to myself, if I really want to understand them, I need to start looking at sound. So I started doing acoustics-based research and the rest is history. I, I'm involved in quite a number of projects at Ocean Networks Canada. Uh, my job there is actually to use our data to try and advance marine science in any way that I can. So I have a number of collaborations with lots of people. I help people find data that's interesting to them. Um, our data are free for anybody to use. But one of the many things I work on is producing these annotated data sets because one of the major issues that our field has recently encountered, and it's, it's a wonderful issue to have, but we're trying to figure out what to do with it, is it's become very inexpensive to collect passive acoustic data. Hard drives are getting really, really cheap. Uh, it's getting easier to do autonomous deployments. And so everybody who's collecting passive acoustic data has suddenly arrived at this point where we have gigabytes upon gigabytes. Some of us have petabytes of data that we just don't have the time to look through. So we all have too much data. <laughs> uh, it's very exciting because there's lots to look at, but it's a real challenge on how do we analyze all of this data. So a big push in the community right now is to develop automated tools. And one of the really big challenges with automated tools is that they need really high quality annotated data to learn from because what these tools are is they're computer-based learners and in a sense we have to teach them what the sounds that they're looking for are which means we need a data set that's already been annotated so that that they can learn from so i've started producing some of those data sets uh, a number of the users that i work really closely with are people who are involved in machine learning uh, developing new detection algorithms, developing new innovations in deep learning, uh, and all of them need data sets. So I've started working on producing these data sets to help them advance the science. It's funny because when I when I started annotating data, I remember I used to tell people all the time, oh, I'm, I'm working to put myself out of work because I'm making all of these annotated data sets so then the computer scientists are going to run with it and they're going to make these great classifiers and it's going to put me out of work. And now that I now that I'm really in it and I see how a lot of these machine learning algorithms function and how well they perform and all of the nuances that confuse them and all of the context that I actually use as a human annotator, I'm starting to realize actually no. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably not going to put myself out of a job. These, these tools will probably make my job easier in that they'll pick out sounds without me having to go through them. Maybe, maybe I can start skipping some files that don't have any sounds of interest in them. Um, so may, it'll make my job faster as an annotator, but I, don't, I think we're a long way from them replacing me. As NGOs continue to work on whale AI projects, big tech companies are jumping on board too. Google has partnered with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans to help develop real-time whale detection. And south of the border, Microsoft scientists have been volunteering their time to create and train an algorithm to detect whale calls in real time. I spoke with Prakruti Goja, a Microsoft software engineer who works on the HoloLens smart glasses, and Akash Mahajan, a Microsoft applied scientist who works on speech recognition. 
They are both part of a project called Orca Hello that has now been deployed on three hydrophones in Washington run by the nonprofit Orca Sound. I work on this stuff for um, our speech products as my day job. And I have burnt my fingers with uh, what can go wrong in, you know, deploying ML systems live in various parts. And this is one non-obvious part, the thing that Prakriti mentioned, uh, the importance of uh, domain, you know, domain matching and how domain shift can actually um, like lead to a lot of brittleness. So, um, you know, it, when we read about like deep learning algorithms and things that are used, um, it seems to us, or it can seem that, you know, AI, you know, is this great thing. You just tell it to do something, it's going to do it magically, and then it'll learn the way humans do. Unfortunately, especially with sound data, it can be really brittle, especially for the amounts of data that we work with in this domain. To give you context for speech recognition, things are trained on like tens of thousands of hours. It's a huge amount of data. Right here, the size is much smaller. So uh, that's why we, from the beginning, we designed our, our uh, we wanted to, you know, create a prototype or a reference design for a system that by design has a feedback loop. So the way we've set up our system is that, you know, we start with some small amount, but we can run on those hydrophones and when false positives and things come back in, they are exactly from what we need and we can you know, use that to refine and continue to improve. All the all the AI and ML products that you that you use today for any services, say Google, Alexa, uh, Microsoft stuff, anything, that's typically the recipe for success. You need to have that feedback loop. That's when things work really great. So that's kind of we knew this ahead of time. So we 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 designed accordingly and paid a lot of attention to making sure it happened this way. And um, another thing I think that would be really valuable for us is uh, having a system to do easier online training of models. So currently what we notice is that there are, at some points we, we do get false positives, right? And uh, whenever we whenever that happens, we have skilled moderators who can tell us, okay, they're keeping a watch on, okay, this is not an, a Southern Desert Killer Wave. This is something completely different, but the model thought that uh, this was a Southern Desert Killer Wave. So, at various points, we take all of this false positive data and retrain our model. And we see that the error decreases every time we do that. So we just want to make this process of model training probably smoother and also want to try seeing if it can be done without too much human supervision in, in, in the middle. So that's, I think, one of the pain points because you know if you want uh, a model, a system to run autonomously without too much effort from our side, that would be that would be really valuable because then the model would train while even even if there aren't any humans to actually watch the training go well, etc. I would also one thing that I think is important and kind of the, was the reason for the genesis of the project is to actually make it useful for uh, the various agencies that are trying to help the southern resident killer whales in the Puget Sound area. So some of them include the Washington Ferries and uh, Port of Seattle. So they already have programs that deal with informing the shipping industry as to when they should reduce their speed in the vicinity of whales, like the Quiet Sound program and the Echoes project. 
so we are hoping to find a place there for our you know an automated system that would also let you know and be working 24/7 to tell you when the southern desert killer whales visit and you know when you should keep a respectable distance from them The reality is that here in the Salish Sea, which is a stretch of ocean that runs from southern BC into Washington state, many whales are threatened by things like vessel strikes, the effects of ship noise, and a dwindling food supply. You may have heard of the southern resident killer whales before. They're an ecotype of orca that are critically endangered, with only 75 members remaining. They're called residents for a reason. This is where they make their home. But this is also vital habitat for other species and ecotypes, the transient killer whales, the northern residents, and humpback whales as well. Being able to know where these whales are in real time, based on alerts from AI, could prevent countless deaths moving forward from things like vessel strikes. This huge archive of data also has a lot of research value and potential. Certain calls can be indicative of particular behaviors, from humpback whales bubble net feeding to orca foraging for fish. Often, pods and even families of orcas have their own distinct calls, and researchers are able to identify which groups are using certain areas and at what times of the year. At the same time, hydrophones are recording vessel noise, which can have a huge impact on killer whales who rely on sound for survival. And so up and down the coast, hydrophones are listening 24-7. They're listening to the sounds of the waves, otter squeaks, boat winches, and of course, whales. With so many scientists and engineers working on this technology, whale AI is set to grow exponentially. Who knows what they will be capable of in the future? To learn more, check out The Root and Stem magazine at pingua.com.